0: we're continuing uh, to look at Habakkuk. We're doing a six-week series on Habakkuk, and this is week two. And and this book is uh, dealing with two issues, really. It deals with the issue of suffering and the sovereignty of God. And today's talk falls more into the sovereignty, sovereignty part of the book. And Habakkuk is unusual in that, although it's Prophetic, it's a prophetic book and it concerns things that are about to happen. It's not so much a prophecy than a record of a conversation that goes on between the prophet Habakkuk and God. And as Simon so brilliantly showed us last week, Habakkuk begins the conversation and asks God two of the big questions we all wrestle with. Number one, how long will I have to wait before you will act? And number two, why do these things have to happen in the first place? Um, and Habakkuk, of course, is talking about the chaos he sees in Judah. That's his country. But we could easily, just as easily, ask the same questions about our own lives, about the world in which we live in. Why, God, is there so much suffering in the world today? Now, why do innocents die? When will these wars stop How much longer will we have to wait until we see people with cancer healed? What about famine? What about natural disasters? The corruption in governments, the injustice we see all around. Why is it that the rich are still getting richer and the poor are still getting poorer? We could have just as easily have been talking about our world today. These age old problems, which even lead some to question whether a loving God even exists in a world where these things are allowed to happen. I mean, surely if he loved us, the argument goes, these things just wouldn't happen. And of course, others have argued the opposite and say the very existence of suffering and evil proves the existence of good and leads us to seek out the one who is supremely good, which can only be found In God, there's this strange tension between those two arguments. As Augustine says, if there is no God, why is there so much good? And if there is a God, why is there so much evil? (laughs) Perhaps you've got caught between those two uh, from time to time. Well, in the conversation Habakkuk is having with God about these sorts of things, he gets an answer. But it's not an answer that he wants or expects, which is why I've called this talk, Lord, I don't understand you. Let's just read the passage first of all, and then we'll get into it. So it's Habakkuk 1, 5 to 11. It'll come up on the screen there. So this is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. He says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laughed at all the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. There you go, Habakkuk. That's the answer to your prayer. God's answer falls into two parts. Firstly, look at the nations, but I'm going to do something amazing and unbelievable, but you're not going to understand me in what I do. That's part one. Part two, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to punish the people. In other words, I'm going to make things even worse. And just so that we can feel the shock of this, it would be a bit like God saying to our grandparents, I'm going to raise up Nazi Germany to punish Europe. That's the kind of nation that we're talking about here in the Babylonians. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think God's answer helps very much. And it reminds me very much of how... How we want God to answer us in our pain, but that when he does, we don't want the answer he gives. I mean, there's no getting away from it. This is a difficult reply. Actually, God's response reminds me of that frustrating reply parents sometimes give to their children when the children say, why? Why do I have to do that? And the parents answer, well, because I said so. That's why. There's no reason given. There's no explanation. It's just because I say so, because I'm the parent, and I know more than you, and I'm bigger than you. (laughs) That's what this answer feels like a bit to me. I don't know about you. And this feeling comes through especially if we limit ourselves only to the passage. If we stay with Habakkuk in his present, if we imagine for a moment that this is our answer that this is the response that we have to live with when we ask our big questions. Because, of course, it's easy for us to skip forward in the story to gain relief from God's answer. Now, the story we know has a happy ending, Simon's told me I'm not allowed to tell you, but I can't help but tell you it's got a happy ending in Daniel and eventually in King Nebuchadnezzar, who encounters God for himself, if you remember. He's humble, and then he commands the whole nation, that evil nation, even the Babylonians, to worship Daniel's God. But Habakkuk doesn't know this. And we know so little about him, we don't even know if you will ever get to know this. Will he live that long? Will he live long enough to see God's plans work out? And he has to live with God's answer. So that's what I want us to do a bit today. I want us to live with this answer, the difficulty of it. Because it's the same for us. We, we may never understand why certain things happen in our lives. And even those around us won't understand. We may never see God's purposes worked out in our lives or in, in those of our children. Now, how often do we say, God, our children? We may never live to see the outcome of the goodness of God in their lives. And so is that okay with you? Is that okay with you? Because this is the kind of question that this interaction with God raises for us. Can you live like that? Can you live with your pain? (laughs) Can you live without knowing? Can you live without understanding? Can you live with all of this uncertainty and decide to trust God anyway? Can you? That's the question this passage raises, living without knowing. That's the call on us. (laughs) Well, I don't think we're very good at this. I don't think we're very good at living with uncertainty and unanswered questions. Actually, it's so opposite to what we're trained to think. Instead, we live with the question everything and somebody owes me something kind of thinking that the world promotes. We live with a kind of arrogance that says, I should be able to understand. No, it's worse than that. It's more than that. It's, I deserve to know why. I deserve an answer. I'm entitled to it. I want to know why that happened or to have some kind of moral justification so that I can decide whether I think this is right or wrong. Do you agree? That's what's behind this thinking, my right to hold out on you until I'm satisfied with your explanation. Which, of course, makes me the ultimate judge of the world (laughs) and of those around us. Can you see? But you see, we have an incomprehensible God. (laughs) And God says to Habakkuk, we've just read it, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm getting excited already. This is going to be incredible. Be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. In fact, you do not have the capability to understand. Not so exciting. In other words, what you're about to see when you look is going to be completely incomprehensible to you. There's your answer. When you look at your circumstances, when you look at your situation, when you look at the world around you, you're going to see and it's going to be completely incomprehensible to you. The work that I'm working will not make sense to you. What I'm going to do is unbelievable. And even if I could explain it to you, says God, you would not be capable of understanding. Because I'm God and you're not. I'm the Father. You're the child. I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. There's no arrogance in this. This isn't God being all high and mighty and you don't know. It's so much, this is the truth. This is the reality. The comparison is between a small child and their father. It's between a sheep and the shepherd. We're in another league to God. God's in another league to us. So God says to Isaiah on one occasion, he says this very famous verse, which we often use positively. But my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Higher, bigger, stronger, wider His actions incomprehensible to us, we just simply don't have the capacity, the intelligence, the length of lifetime to even begin to grasp the meaning of what he does and the way he does it, let alone why. (laughs) Otherwise he wouldn't be God, would he? He wouldn't be God, by definition, to claim to understand everything. To be in control of everything, that makes me God. (laughs) Or will certainly limit our view of God, his greatness, his supremacy, and his power. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you limited him? How big is your God? (laughs) How big is he? Is he the size of your mind? Is he the size of your understanding? How have you limited him? How big is your God? You know, some of us live with a very small God. We limit him and confine him to the smallest part of our lives so that what we end up with is a distant God who we acknowledge from time to time, but mostly we just get on with things ourselves. (laughs) We just try and work them out. Actually, it's self-reliance. We don't really need God, but sometimes we pray to him to make ourselves feel better. How big is your God? Or how small have you made him? Can you live with a big God? (laughs) Can you live with a God who is beyond comprehension? Can you live with a God who is so big that he has the whole of history and the whole of eternity under his lordship and power? Can you live with promises that will outlast you and outlast your lifetime? Because he says he is going to work out all of his goodness throughout all the earth for all time. Can you live with that? Can you live with a big God, one that you cannot understand? Of course, if you do, then it will mean that from time to time, you'll have to live with some pretty big questions. You'll have to live with some perplexing problems. When we face bad things in our lives, The very core of our faith is is tested to the limit, and we teeter on the edge in those moments, and I know because I've done it, teeter on the edge of some pretty difficult conclusions, some pretty unhelpful conclusions, especially about God and who he really is. think about the example of job i mean it's the one you've got to go to isn't it you've got to go to the story of job think about job he had so many reasons to question god overnight he lost everything his wealth was gone his children murdered his home destroyed his health gone His peace of mind, his sanity gone because of the agonies that he endured. Even his friends turned against him. Why? What have I done? What's going on? God, who are you? And Job's book is the one that we turn to when we face tragedy and extremity in our lives because it speaks to our pain. We get it. When we read Job, we get it. We get it. We feel it. And you know that Job was wondering who God was. <laughs> through all that he went through, he said, have I got it wrong about you? Because it looked to Job like God was some kind of cosmic sadist. Because of everything that had been allowed to happen to him. And so he wrestles and he agonizes. He suffers beyond what is reasonable for any human being to endure. Until finally... At the end of the book of Job, God turns up with the answer. And the answer is questions. (laughs) I've been waiting for this answer, God, and you turn up to question me. And here are the questions God asks He says to Job, Who are you? Who are you? Are you God? Did you write history? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the future? Do you even understand the present? Are you not just a man? And Job, through these questions, realizes the answer is in his own limitations. That God is God, and that he's satisfied. Job is satisfied. Why? Because he sees God. See, God doesn't write him a paper on suffering. He doesn't even write him a book on the problem of evil. It would have been the best book that could have ever been written. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just shows himself to Job. And that satisfied him. It has to. It has to. It's got to be our answer because that's what's going to satisfy us forever in heaven. We just see Him. And suddenly that's the answer. I see Him. And I think that Job, in this section here, I love that last section of the book of Job. I can't wait to get to it. I don't know about you. But he gets a foretaste of heaven at the end of the book because he meets God. If it were only words that God gave him, that would mean Job would come back and ask God another question. And God would give him another good answer. But then Job would ask him another question the next day. And the next day, because Job had a lot of questions, and they would have gone on and on, and they would have never ended. So what could make the questions end? God's presence. God's presence. Do you have questions? Do you have questions of injustice, questions of confusion, questions that say, Lord, I really don't understand you? Well, what you need is not just an answer, but the answer, which is his presence with you. Jesus never promised us that it would be easy. I don't know how many times I've said that this year, but it seems like God might be saying it and reminding us. He never promised us it would be easy. He said that we would have trouble in our lives. He also promised that he would never leave us, even for a moment. How many of you have found this? I mean, how many of us have found that in our hardest times, and the times of our biggest questions and our greatest difficulties, that these have been the times when Jesus' presence has been the most tangible? Do you know, sometimes I'm suspicious about the tough stuff I go through because I think he just wants me to come a bit closer. I think he just wants to reveal another part of his grace and his mercy and his love. I think he does. I've been to that point where all I have known, all I've known, all I've known is that he loves me and nothing else. (laughs) And then you get a revelation of his love. Those times... Of the greatest difficulties are the times when his word has come to us the most clearly. Those are the times when our prayers have been the most intimate and the sweetest. In the times of extremity and difficulty. In the second part of his answer, God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something you won't understand. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians which the prophet knew would only make things worse, a lot worse. I mean, you can just imagine Habakkuk shaking his head and saying, God, I don't understand you. Listen, there's something that we need to settle in our hearts and minds. And if we do, it's going to make our lives a bit easier. How does that sound? Here's the thing that we need to settle. You are not going to understand everything that happens in this world. You're not. You're not going to understand it. You are not going to get all the answers you want or feel you might need. You know, even your friends might understand sometimes, might not understand sometimes, might not understand you, might not understand what you're going through. Maybe it's because you sinned, or maybe it's because of this or because of that. We get all those silly answers, and actually there is no answer, it just is. We're not going to understand. Your family may even turn against you because of what's happening to you, but you can choose to trust anyway. You might not understand, but you can choose to trust anyway. You do have that choice. Amen? Because although you may not be capable of understanding what he does, you can be certain of who he is. (laughs) Always. You can always know who he is and your ability to trust him when things go on depend on that knowing him knowing him knowing who he is who do you say that he is who do you say that I am Jesus said that is the crucial question for surviving the world who do you say that he is and what do you think he's really like It's the character and the nature of God that we must depend upon when the storms of life come and threaten to overwhelm you. So I just want to finish with asking that question, what's God like? That's where I want us to stand because that is our foundation for enduring hardship and difficulties. It's who God is. And the easiest place to look for the answer to this question is, is in the Son of God. Who is God like? Well, look at his Son. Jesus, who it says is the exact representation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus shows us what God is like. He shows us what he's really like. Never mind all the other stuff. Look at Jesus. He told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. There's no difference. You look at me, me and my dad, we're the same. All right, stop. That's enough. <laughs> me and my dad, did you get that? <laughs> me and my dad, we're the same. If you want to see what the Father is like, look at me. And if you want to know what the Father does, watch me. If you want to hear what the Father says, Jesus says, listen to me. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Jesus said, I am the Father are one. I and my Father are one. I am in the Father and he is in me. Everything Jesus did was an exact representation of the Father's heart. Think about all that Jesus did when he picked up little children to bless them. The Father was doing that. When he forgave the woman caught in adultery, the Father was there. When he healed the sick, when he set the demonized free, the Father was there. When he multiplied the food for the hungry, it was his Father. When he called, he was called a friend of the sinners, that was Almighty God, the Father in Jesus. When he washed his disciples' feet, that was God. God doing it, washing the disciples' feet. And when he suffered in extremity and when he died, it was the Father in Christ (laughs) reconciling us to himself. Wow! Jesus was saying by these things, look at me, I'm showing you what the Father is really like. God is not distant and uncaring. He's not hard and unfeeling. He's not remote from our suffering. He's not too busy for us. He's your Father, Jesus tells us, and He's good. He's very, very good. He's loving. He's patient. He's merciful. He's kind. He's faithful. And He is actively working in the world today to display His goodness and work out all of His purposes. So in those moments, in those times when we say, Lord, I don't understand you, we can say, Lord, I don't understand you, but I know who you are. And I know what you're like. And that's not you. (laughs) Amen? Just think about that thing that you're struggling with, the thing that you've been going through, that thing that you've been facing, where you've been saying, Lord, I don't understand you. Just think about it for a moment. I really don't understand why that had to happen, Father. But I know who you are. And I know what you're like. And if I'm not happy about that, then neither are you. That's where the lamentation starts. That's where the cry starts. When you know who God is, when you know what he's like, and you see injustice and you say, that's not right, that's where the intercession starts in your heart. Amen? Of course, the advantage that we have over Habakkuk is that we know the end of the story. We know how it all turns out. And you know the hardest thing about going through tough times is you don't know. You don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know how it's going to land. If you look at stories like the story of Habakkuk, you can see that God does have it all in hand. (laughs) And that his plan works out right through to Jesus. That's what it's all about. This is preparing a people for Jesus to come, for the Messiah to come. But guys, it's the same for us. We might not know how things are going to work out specifically in our own lives, but we do know that the end of the story of mankind has already been written. Now, the Bible shows us that the wicked will never ultimately escape judgment. And justice is never denied, it's just delayed. (laughs) How did they get away with that? They won't. They won't get away with it. You may not see it, but the Bible shows us so clearly that nobody's going to get away with anything in the end. And the reason why justice is delayed, frustratingly for us, this is, (laughs) is because of the very nature and character of the God upon whom we depend, His unending patience and grace. His unending mercy and his love, God, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why there's a delay, and yet we say, God, act now. (laughs) I'm giving them a bit more time. I'm giving them a bit more time. Deathbed, that'll do. I'll grab him then. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. The thing that we get most frustrated about is actually the thing we rely upon. His grace, his patience, his mercy. So the question that this, this talk hasn't been a, a light-hearted tee-hee joke, has it? it? This is serious stuff. And the question that it leaves us with is, will you trust him now, <laughs> in the meantime? You don't know what's going to happen next, but will you trust that your God is big enough? Will you trust that when you say, Lord, I don't understand you, but I know who you are and I know what you're like, that's enough for you? Will you come to that place? Will you agree to live with the confusion of not knowing and not understanding? And I guess the answer to that question is that it all depends on whether you truly believe that he is who he says he is. And that he's like what he says he's like. He's a good, good father. God is with us. That's Emmanuel. God with us. Christmas. And the answer, and I'd love to do a whole thing on apologetics, maybe we should do this sometime, but the answer is not in an explanation for pain or for suffering. It's not in an explanation, the answer is in a person. The answer is in Jesus, who suffered and died for the sins of the world.